Thank you for sharing. Awesome. <clears throat> Happy Sabbath, church. Oh, boy, it's good to be back home. <laughs> uh, last Sabbath, I got to go down to my 15-year high school reunion. I was wondering if I should admit that or not. But, <laughs> but it was a blessing to be there, to see old friends, and um, to have people ooh and ah over the fact that we were going to have a third baby. <laughs> um, for some of you, uh, maybe you are on Facebook and you saw my wife's friendly post um, about playing a little bit of a guessing game, because this last week we actually had um, an appointment that was kind of revealing for us, um, an ultrasound that allowed uh, us to understand what kind of baby we're going to have. <laughs> and some of you I see are wearing pink, some of you I see are wearing blue. All right. <laughs> and um, if you addressed your guess, then uh, yeah, we are going to have a boy. We're going to have a boy. So praise the Lord for that. <clears throat> yeah. Anyways, so thank you for your prayers. I know that, um, yeah, this is a long journey, and the journey hasn't even begun yet, <laughs> but please pray for us as a family. And, um, you know, it's, it's been an exciting last few weeks. Um, you know, I've, as I've been preparing for this message in particular, I've really just uh, seen how God has put different things in my life for me to actually see this sermon in action. Today, what we're going to study is the parable that maybe you're very, very familiar with. It's a parable of the sheep and the goats. Does anybody know what I'm talking about today? Yes, yeah, the parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew chapter 25. And we're, we're continuing our series. Actually, we started it last month. We're, we're concluding it today. Watching and waiting. What it, is, what it really means to watch for the second coming of Jesus. Before we get into that study, let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, <clears throat> we thank you so much for the gift of life in Jesus. Lord, we realize that it's in him that we live and move and have our very existence. There's nothing that we have or can do apart from you. And so we just thank you for this breath and the next. God, we thank you for this opportunity now just to open up the word together. We want to understand how to watch and to wait. Lord, many of us are, are going through dark valleys where that watching and waiting is, is filled with a sense of desperation and urgency. Oh, Lord Jesus, come. Some of us have been coming from weeks where, where the second coming is actually the last thing on our mind. Lord, wherever we are, I pray that you would recalibrate our hearts to fix our eyes on eternal things. And as we study, please, don't just inform us. Please transform us. We pray this in Jesus' name, let the family say Amen. All right, open your Bible with me, if you will. Matthew chapter 25. If you didn't bring a Bible, there may be a Bible there in the pew in front of you. We're going to Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 36. Excuse me, beginning in verse 31. Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 31. I'm going to read from the New King James Bible. And if you'll remember, this is the third parable in this chapter. Matthew chapter 25 has been telling several parables that we're really, really familiar with. In the previous chapter, Matthew chapter 24, the disciples were asking a very simple question. Jesus, when are you going to come? When are you going to come? What are the signs that we are going to know that your coming is near? And Jesus addresses their chronological concern, but he's really getting at a relational priority. And in Matthew chapter 25, he begins to unfold through stories, through parables, how it is to watch and to wait, not just when it's coming, but how to be ready, right? 
So in Matthew chapter 25, there's several parables that you're familiar with. You remember the parable of the ten what? The ten virgins. Five were wise, five were foolish. And in this parable, Jesus is emphasizing that watching, what to do in the time of delay. In the very next parable, it's the parable of the talents. Do you remember this story? Three servants, the master goes on a far journey. He gives them a load of treasure each, right? Do you remember how much a talent actually was? Who, who remembers? It was, it, it was 6,000 days wages, okay? 6,000 days wages was given to one. Okay, one talent here, two talents here, five talents. Jesus unfolds, unloads a huge treasure on these servants. And there, the, the emphasis of that parable isn't so much the watching, but it's the working while we watch, okay? And here, in the parable of the sheep and the goats, this is now kind of focusing what kind of work, what's the essential nature of that work as we await Jesus' return. Are you ready to get into it? It's Matthew chapter 25. If you're there, say amen. amen. All right, beginning in verse 31, we're just going to read through the whole parable all the way through so you kind of get a landscape picture of this. It says in verse 31, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. Unlike the previous parables, Jesus isn't comparing Himself to something else like, like a groom that's coming or a, um, a master that's going on a journey. This time He's just being very real. Hey, when the Son of Man comes, when I come and I sit as King on the throne, Verse 32, it says, All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another as a shepherd divides what? His sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Now, if you guys are uh, really adoring of goats, this isn't any, any knock on goats, okay? <laughs> this is just a, a distinction, okay? Sheep and goats, they kind of look similar, but they're actually different, okay? That's, that's really what this parable is doing here. There's a distinction that this king is making. And in verse, in verse 33 it says, And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, uh, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in? Or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to who? To me. Verse 41 continues, and he looks at the other group, says, Then he will also say to those on the left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire, prepared for who? For the devil and his angels. Why? Verse 42, For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not take me in. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not, what's the next word? Minister to you. 
Verse 45, then he will answer them saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to who? To me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into everlasting life. This is kind of a sobering story when you kind of read it all the way through. It's, it's really, it's set in the framework of a judgment scene. Wouldn't you agree? Jesus is distinguishing, hey, you know, this is the time of his return. He's, he's saying, look, look, this is your true character and this is your true character. This is a judgment scene where there are how many groups? How many? Two groups. Two groups. And friends, this is the case in all three of those parables of Matthew 25. There's the wise virgins and the foolish virgins, Right? And even though there's three servants in the parable of the talents, there's actually faithful servants and wicked and lazy servants, right? In the same way here, sheep and goats. And you ask yourself, what are the distinctions between these groups? Because it's in those distinctions that we actually discover how to be ready for Jesus' coming. What readiness really means. So in in the parable of the virgins, five were wise, five were foolish. Five had oil for themselves, five did not. So how to be ready? Obtain oil for yourself. Amen? We've, we've talked about this. This was several weeks ago. In other words, have a personal acquaintance with Jesus Christ. Know him. Don't just, don't just settle for knowing about him. Know him now. The distinction between the faithful servants and the unfaithful servants? What was it? Well, it's they received their grace. They received that treasure, and they received it to give it. They received it to share it. The wicked and lazy servant received it just to preserve it. He received it just to protect it for himself. And that's the distinction. That when God gives grace, it's not just for me, myself, and I. It's for others too. Are we following today? Yes or no? Yeah? This is how to be ready. This is how to be ready. So how about here in the sheep and the goats? What is the distinction? The difference hinges upon this very simple thing. How they treated Jesus. How they treated Jesus? What do you mean? No, how they treated Jesus in the person of the least of those around them. Did you catch it? That clinching statement in verse 40, and again it comes down in verse 45, when the king answers in verse 40 and says to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these. That word least, it's not just the smallest, it's, 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 it's the, the, most, the least significant. The least important. He says, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, and then what are the next two words? One of the least of these what? My brethren. Do you realize that the people that seem to be most insignificant to us are actually the brothers and sisters of Jesus? They actually belong to the family of God. That Jesus so closely identifies himself with humanity that he identifies himself with the whole structure, the whole cast, if you have that in your whole mind. This is something that Jesus, he reaches the depths of humanity and says, look, that one that that doesn't seem like is good for anything, that's my blood. We're like this. And maybe you've, you've seen that in your own family relationships when someone mistreats your brother or your sister or when someone mistreats your own child, you feel as though it's a great offense to, to you. 
Ah, but when they care for that individual and when they shower gifts upon that individual, you feel like you're being loved as well. And this is what Jesus is saying. Hey, this is my blood relationship here. So whatever you do to the least of these, you're actually doing it to me. And the flip side is, whatever you're not doing, (laughs) whatever you're not doing to the least of these, or whatever you're withholding, whatever service you're withholding, you're actually withholding it from me. So the difference The difference hinges on how they treated Jesus in the person of the least. What is done to them is actually done to Jesus. Today what I want to do before, you know, as we get into practical applications here, is I want to look at these distinctions a little bit more closely, okay? So let's just kind of compare the two groups, the the sheep and the goats. What was it that made them different? How did Jesus interact with them differently? And how did they interact with Jesus differently, okay? So let's take a look. Beginning in verse 34, when you're there, say amen. All right, hopefully we're all there. Verse 34, the Bible says, Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come you what? Blessed of my father. Okay, so one difference that we're going to notice right away is that one group is blessed. One group is blessed. In other words, there's a favor that God sees upon this, this group of people. Actually, if you compare it, just contrast it very quickly. Where is it? In verse 41. Verse 41, what is the other group called? We know one group is called blessed, but what is the other group called? It says in verse 41, yeah, you got it. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, depart from me, you cursed. Okay, so we're looking at a group of sheep and a group of goats. A group of blessed and a group of cursed. Very interesting. What other distinctions? Uh, Just kind of flip your eyes back to verse 34. Come, you blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for who? For you from the foundation of the world. In other words, this was the original design. When God set up the world from the very beginning, how did he create it? He created it good. He created it perfect. When God created Adam and Eve, the very first things that came out of his mouth, you know, before he got down into the dirt, he said in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, it says, let us make man in our image. In other words, this is the kingdom that was originally prepared for you. When I originally set things up, I originally intended for you to reflect my character. And now he's saying, look, come on in because you're reflecting my character. Do we follow that, yes or no? Yeah? What's the flip side? Notice the contrast in verse, verse 41. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire, prepared for who? Whoa. Prepared for the devil and his angels. In other words, if, if that kingdom is prepared because, you know, this is the character that they're reflecting, the citizenship that they're demonstrating is of heavenly origin. On the other hand, the citizenship that they're demonstrating is of demonic origin. This is actually a very stark contrast. In other words, the group that he's talking to on the left, even though they may resemble good, moral humanity, at heart, they're actually resembling something that is more akin to the character of the devil. And some of this might be somewhat mysterious, but I hope that by the end of this we can kind of draw this in and really understand what is the distinction between the character of God and the character of his enemy, okay? 
So we've got like, sheep, we've got goats, we've got blessed, we've got cursed, we've got prepared for, from the foundation of the world, prepared for the enemy and his angels. Let's take a look some more. Another contrast is simply in their behavior, right? We can see that verses 35 through 36, Jesus is telling them, hey, look, when I was hungry, you gave me food. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink, etc., etc." But on the other hand, the group of cursed, the group of the goats, they did not do that. So here, this distinction of behavior is essentially this. The blessed have been a blessing to others. The cursed could have cared less. We're seeing that distinction, yeah? Uh, just, just notice a little bit, you know, what kind of world the, the, the blessed and the cursed live in. They live in the same kind of world. They respond to it differently. The world in which they live, the world in which we all live, is a world in which there is great need. It's a world in which there is great lack. Notice all the conditions. There was hunger. That's a lack of food. There was thirst. That's a lack of water. There was nakedness. That's a lack of provision, clothing. There was sickness. That's a lack of health, but not just a lack of health. It's also a lack of, of, of companionship and community. Remember, when someone was sick in that kind of a community, in that, in that uh, society, they were seemed as uh, kind of put off to the fringes and say, uh, you must have done something to deserve that. You remember Job's friends? Yeah, yeah. I'm actually reading that right now in my devotions, and it's like, boy, I, don't, I hope I don't have friends like that. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so there is this mentality that when you were sick, you, you must have done something to kind of be pushed to the edges of God's favor. And by default, they pushed those sick individuals to the ed edges of their own favor. Those were the needs. That there was physical need, but there was also emotional and relational need. Same with those in prison. And so how did the blessed interact with that kind of world? They decided to be a blessing to that world. How did the cursed uh, interact with that kind of world? They could care less. I love the fact that, um, you know, just kind of a sidebar here, as we take a look more closely at verse 35 and 36, notice how the blessed actually met those needs. It says, for I was hungry and you gave me food, right? It doesn't say I was hungry and um, you gave me a pat on the back. <laughs> I was thirsty and you gave me drink. So there's a tangible provision here. I was a stranger and you took me in. Someone that, that was new to the area, someone that was foreign to the dynamic, the situation, but you welcomed me anyway. Okay, this is a relational thing that I think we, sometimes we play games like this, not just on the playground when we're in recess, but even in our older adult years. If they're not like me, well, they'll find somebody else. <laughs> when they're strangers, how do we welcome? When they're foreign to us, how do we take them in? Notice in verse 36, I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you, what's the next word? Visited me. I just kind of want to land right here. I'll be very honest. I grew up in a family of physicians, okay? <laughs> my parents are doctors. Both my older siblings are doctors. So when I see someone who is sick, I often think to myself, I wish I was a doctor. Does anybody ever feel like that? You see somebody who's sick and you wish, oh, I wish I could help them. And so, because I don't feel equipped to do that, I don't do very much of anything. But notice how the sheep do this. I was sick, and you did what? You visited me. Do you realize, friends, 
that you may not necessarily have a healing gift to offer. You may not necessarily have a silver bullet of a med or a prescription to offer, but you have the ministry of your presence. If you're taking notes, just write that one down. Ministry of presence. Same thing with prison. Those who are in prison and you came to me. You may not be a lawyer that can get them out. You may not have a load of money to bail them out. You may not be a counselor to kind of help them work through their probation. But look, you are an individual who can still come and give the ministry of your presence. So here's something that the sheep do. When they see the world around them, they give what is needed. Now let me say it like this. You can give what they need and you can give what you can. Do you follow me today, yes or no? Yeah? You may not be able to give them a silver bullet or whatever, but you can give them the ministry of your presence. Sometimes that's actually the deepest thing that people need. Praise the Lord for this simple story, amen? And so the story continues, and this is, this is a, the other distinction that I, I want us to understand is that it's not just in terms of their blessing or cursing. It's not just in terms of their their citizenship. It's not just in terms of their behavior. But it's actually the distinction is in their surprise. And you're thinking to yourself, well, they were both surprised. What's the difference there? They were both surprised for different reasons. Notice, notice why the element of surprise in the group that's, that's called the blessed, the sheep, okay? In verse 38, I'm sorry, verse 37. It says, Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And you know what? The, the goats actually say the very same thing. They say that same element of, well, when did we see you and not do this? When did we see you in this situation and not do this? But they're asking it for different reasons. The sheep, they're asking it because, because what they've been doing was an automatic, unconscious response of love. They didn't mean to, they just did it, right? Love was internalized. But what's very subtle is that the cursed group, the, the goats, they ask that question as though they're essentially saying, had I known, I would have done it. Had I been informed, I would have done it. Which means that their love would not have been automatic, but it would have been programmed. Uh, Let let me see if I can say it like this. I think I tried to write this down so I could... (laughs) The surprise element, it sheds light on their motivations. One is a love that is unconscious a love that is internalized. The other is a love that is programmed and contrived, which means it's really a love that's selfish at the core. It's really not about the other person, but about what they can get out of it themselves. That's kind of sobering to me. (laughs) Because at the end of this kind of a story, I will naturally respond and say, oh man, now that I know that, I'm going to look at every of the quote-unquote least around me and I'm going to try to love them. But here's the thing, that's exactly what the goats would say. That's exactly what the goats would say. In other words, uh, let, let, me, let me try to love. But that's not what the sheep are like. They don't have to try. It just comes from the outflow of a divine love that is so internalized 
that it's just who they are without even trying. Wow. I want to love like that. I want to love like that. It's a love that doesn't seek for brownie points. It's a love that doesn't seek for merit in the eyes of God. When love is natural, and maybe another word would be when love is spontaneous, it's from the overflow of hearts that are fitted for that kingdom that was prepared from the very beginning. There's a quote from the book Desire of Ages, page 641. You know how Jesus instructed his disciples, love one another as I have loved you? In response to this, there's a statement there in in Desire of Ages, page 641. It says, When we love the world as he loved it, then for us his mission is accomplished. Let it sink in. When we love the world as he loved it, then for us his mission is accomplished. But the next sentence is even more awesome. We are fitted for heaven for we have heaven in our hearts. I want to love like that, guys. <laughs> you know, maybe you've seen those, uh, those very catchy but simple banners all around town. April 18, Love Modesto, right? Have you gone on to even look at what Love Modesto is all about? It's all these service projects, all these ways in which we can show tangible, demonstrable love for the community. I love Love Modesto, okay? I think it is awesome. I just wish that I didn't need to be reminded that that's what I should do. Spontaneous love. If we look at what the sheep did, spontaneous love is practical. If you're taking notes, you can, this, this is something to remember. Spontaneous love is practical. That means there's tangible provisions given. Food, water, clothing, Okay, it's practical, but it's also personal. Okay, maybe I can't, uh, you know, give a medicine here or whatever. I can't give a treatment here, but I can give my personal presence. Okay. Spontaneous love is practical. Spontaneous love is personal. And I would say this, spontaneous love is proactive. Do you understand what I mean by that? It doesn't wait for the need to come to me. It goes to the need. Did you notice how the sheep did that? Hey, uh, when I was hungry, you gave me. When I was thirsty, you gave me. When I was a stranger, you took me. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was sick, you visited me. When I was in prison, you came. Spontaneous love is practical, it's personal, it's proactive, and it's evidence of the fact that we are fitted for heaven. I long for that kind of love. I want to step back for just a little bit and put this parable in its context of Matthew chapter 24 and 25. Jesus is talking about how to be ready for the return. And I want us to redefine just for a moment what readiness for the return really means. Let's be honest. As Adventists, we are looking forward to the soon return of Jesus. Amen? And as Adventists, because of our prophetic heritage, because of our prophetic understanding, we realize that there are certain things that must take place before he returns. But let me just focus our attention here because readiness for that return is not just a chronological issue. Readiness for the return is not just understanding the timing of that return. 
It's not primarily a chronological issue. It is ultimately a relational issue. If the return of Jesus, notice this, in terms of relational understandings, if the return of Jesus means the reunion of the heavenly family with the human family, if that's what the return of Jesus is really waiting for, when that reunion can actually happen, then readiness means that whatever caused the separation in the first place has been undone. Okay, let me say that again. If the reunion, if, if the second coming of Jesus is all about reuniting heaven with humanity, then readiness for the return at its root is all about whether or not the reason for the rift has been undone. What is the reason for the rift? According to Isaiah chapter 59, verses 1 and 2, it's our sins that have separated us from God. It's our iniquities that have hidden his face from us. Sin is the cause of this, right? Is that right? Yes or no? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Were there not sin in the equation, then, hey, humanity would be united with heaven. So the question is, what is sin? <laughs> According to first, you can write this down. First John chapter 3, verse 4. Actually, let me quote Romans chapter 14, verse 23. We talked about this in our Sabbath school group over there in Bellman Hall. Romans chapter 14, verse 23. Maybe this is an unfamiliar uh, definition of sin, but in Romans chapter 14, verse 23, the Bible says, whatever is not from faith is sin. Whatever is not from faith, whatever is not from a trust in Jesus, whatever is motivated by either trust in self or even doubt and fear of Jesus, that's actually sin. So somehow, before we are ready for his return, we are going to come to a point of trusting in Jesus. And that mistrust of Jesus, which was originally from a misunderstanding of the character of God, remember the Garden of Eden and and all that Eve was dialoguing with the serpent about. It was all about a misunderstanding of the character of God that led to a mistrust of God himself. Then readiness for his return will require that we learn to trust God all over again. Right? Another definition of sin, 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. Can anybody quote this one? For sin is transgression of the law. Other versions say sin is lawlessness. And as Jesus defined what the law was, he defined the law in two things. He said the two greatest commandments, the summation of what those commandments are all about is love God with all your heart, mind, and soul. and Love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, sin is the opposite of love. Uh, Maybe we would put it like this. Actually, one author, George Knight, he puts it like this. Sin is love that's misplaced. (laughs) Sin is love that's misplaced. Do you understand what I mean by that? In other words, it's love of self rather than love of God as supreme. Okay. So, if that's what sin is, and that's the reason for the rift between the heavenly family and the human family, then readiness for his return will be the undoing of the mistrust of God that's based upon a misunderstanding of his character, and it will be the undoing 
of our self-love as supreme. Am I getting too philosophical here? (laughs) This parable is demonstrating that very same thing. That we are going to understand the character of God in such a way that love of self has been laid to the dust. That's what the sheep have. The sheep have this experience of the character of God that is so real and internalized. It's not just something that they look at and study and and have discussions about. No, it's, it's become them. And it's become so real that the love of self is a far gone memory. It's been laid to the, it's been buried. (laughs) When we love the world as he loved it, then for us his mission is accomplished. We're fitted for heaven because we have heaven in our hearts. So, what are the practical takeaways here, huh? Is it, is it, okay, go out these doors and go love? (laughs) No. Because that's exactly what the goats would want. I mean, that's the, exactly how the goats would be programmed to operate. Okay. Friends, let me be clear. This is not about a guilt trip. <laughs> this is not about a guilt trip to make us try harder to love people. That would be defeating the purpose because it wouldn't be natural and spontaneous. Do you understand what I mean by that? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what we're looking for is an experience that the sheep have where love is the natural, unconscious, spontaneous outflow of a love that has been internalized. Oh, so how does that happen? See, the goats feel like they would have done differently had they known. And so what we want today is not self-righteousness, but self-awareness, right? Okay. So if we realize today, maybe you're like me and you're realizing, whoa, 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 I don't have a love like the sheep do. I don't have a love that just comes. If you're realizing like, like I am, then here's what I would suggest. Take these three parables, not just the sheep and the goats, but take these three parables as a message. And if, if the parable of the sheep and the goats is saying, look, I'm not there, I'm not ready for the return, then go back to parable number one and know God for yourself. Obtain oil. That's something you and I can do. That's something we, you and I can pursue. And it could it be that as we get to know God, as we obtain oil for ourselves, we will actually be given a new heart and a new spirit. That the miracle of conversion and the miracle of transformation actually comes not as I do, but as I become a child of God. So that would be number one. Go back to knowing God. Go back to getting oil for yourself. Go back to receiving that talent, that load of treasure, that grace, and realize that this is grace not just to be preserved for me, but this is grace to be given to others. So go back. Go back to the basics. Friends, I am not here to tell you to go love harder. (laughs) I believe the word of God is simply calling us to know God and let him change us from the inside out. I want us all, friends, here at Parkwood and beyond, I would love to see a community of sheep. (laughs) That when they're asked, hey, did you realize you were doing that for Jesus? 
the simple surprised response would be so uncalculating, so unconscious that, oh, when was that? <laughs> I would love to see a love that is spontaneous. Actions and kindness and deeds of compassion that are so natural to us that it's like taking a breath. And that's only going to happen as we get oil for ourselves. Friends, I want to be ready for his return. And may our readiness not just be built upon times and dates, but may our readiness be built upon our relationship with Jesus. How many of you long for that kind of readiness today? Amen. Let's bow our heads and pray for that miracle. Father in heaven, we long for new hearts today. (sighs) Let's be honest, God, we are not like you. And for this, we plead for grace and repentance. We pray, God, that you would convert us. And so, Father, in the time that you have blessed us here on earth, we pray to know Jesus. We pray to come get oil. Because it's not by might nor by power, but it's by only your Holy Spirit that this work of conversion can actually be accomplished. Father, we want to love our families. We want to love our friends. We want to love the least. But we know we cannot if you're not doing it in us. And so our simple prayer is, God, that you would, in the coming days and in the coming weeks, bring us back, bring us back to a relationship with you that is not just about understanding, but it's about transforming Father, we thank you. We thank you that you can do this. We thank you that as we fix our eyes on Jesus, just as, just as when we look, look up to the sun in the sky and kind of blinds our eyes, but then when we look away and we start looking around, we only see the sun in our vision. God, when we look to Jesus, we pray that we would see Jesus all around us. And so, Father, work out this transformation in our lives. That's our simple prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Praise the Lord.